Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to the very first episode of Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. When I talked to Fradkoff, I said, we have your people. We just arrested them. So I thought he would deny that these people were spies. And he said, you're right. They are my people. I have to talk to Putin. That's my guest on today's show, former Secretary of Defense and CIA Director Leon Panetta. And Putin wasn't in really any official position at the time. (laughs) Particularly in light of what's going on today, I don't think uh, we can ever kid ourselves about the fact that Russia is an adversary. But before that, I want to start this episode the way I plan to start it every week. To answer questions submitted by you, my listeners, if you have questions about the news, about law or politics or justice, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara. Or even better, you can call and leave a voicemail at 669-247-7338. For example, this week, I'm sure most, if not all of you, heard the news about the investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller revealing that Paul Manafort and his lawyers may have been told that they can expect him to be charged. Now, there'll be other occasions in future episodes to get into that a little bit more. But for now, I think it's important to say that I know these people. I know Bob Mueller pretty well. These people are dedicated, they're honorable, they're fair, and they're not afraid of anything. And we'll get into that both later in this episode and in future episodes. But for now, I thought I'd answer at some length the question I get most often. And that is, what's the story behind getting fired by Donald Trump? I haven't told the story in this much detail before, and obviously it's from just my perspective, but here it is. So it's November 8th, 2016, and Donald Trump, in a surprise, wins the election. And what that means for U.S. attorneys around the country, myself included, historically, you're out of a job. So I began making my bucket list of the kinds of things that I wanted to do in my final remaining few months in office, and I'd had a great time, and I was going to miss all my colleagues, the finest colleagues and public servants that I've ever met. But I was ready to move on because one side had lost the election. So imagine my surprise, eight days after the election... When I got a call from my former boss, Senator Chuck Schumer, senior senator from New York, who called me out of the blue 
and said that he had heard from Donald Trump and that President-elect Trump had said to Schumer, you know, I really like Preet. Do you think he'd consider staying on as the United States attorney? It came as a surprise to me that Donald Trump liked me and said he liked me. I was, I guess, flattered at the time. I called Senator Schumer back and I said, I'd be honored to stay. And I have some things that I'm still working on that I'd like to oversee. So within a few days, I heard back from Senator Schumer, who said that Donald Trump is really glad that you want to stay, but he wants to meet you. So on the morning of November 30th, I traveled up Fifth Avenue with two of my investigators. I walked into the lobby of Trump Tower, didn't know what to expect, what kind of conversation it would be. And I walked through, and people may have seen this, there's a cordoned off area where all the press was sort of kept in a pen. And as I walked by, trying to mind my own business and stare straight ahead and walk to the elevator, someone in the press gaggle yelled to me, Mr. Barrara, are you here to serve Trump a subpoena? Some other members of the press laughed. I stared straight ahead. We pressed the up button. So I walk in, and I'm basically shooting the breeze with Steve Bannon, who's sitting on my left, and Jared Kushner, who's sitting on my right, and they are very upbeat, and I engaged in small talk with them. About 10 or 15 minutes later, a very warm and friendly Donald Trump shows up at his office, shakes my hand, makes a joke that I've heard him make 100 times since then, which was he looked at me and looked at Bannon and Kushner and said, you know, this guy gets better press than me, which may now be true. And he basically, he said, I'm sure you're getting a lot of offers from the private sector, but you've been doing a great job. He did not say anything inappropriate. He did not get into any examples of cases at all. Uh, We joked a little bit about his relationship with Senator Schumer, which has its ups and downs. It seems to be, at the moment, a little bit up. And back then it was up, and in between it's been down. And we talked for 15 or 20 minutes, at the end of which he said, you know, I've already talked to Jeff Sessions about it, because at this point, Sessions had been named as the next attorney general. And he said, he's on board, and everyone's excited to have you on. You're a, you know, basically you're a tough and fair prosecutor, and I want you to stay. And I said... I intend to do the job if I stay the way I've been doing it for seven and a half years, independently, apolitically, and aggressively as the law requires and as my oath requires. And I presume that that's why you're asking me to stay, to do the job in the way that I have done it. And so I'd be honored to serve in that role. And by the way, you know, one of the things I was thinking at the time, because I've been asked this question since, why just stay if, you know, you may not have been in love with Donald Trump? And the reason is, the nature of the job of the United States Attorney is there is only one thing to which you are loyal, and that's the Constitution, and by extension, to the public. The United States Attorney in any district does not serve the President. You serve at the pleasure of the President, but you don't serve the President. And, as a general matter, the U.S. Attorney in my district, going back to Bob Morgenthau and before, is a highly independent figure, and it's a highly independent office. The nickname for the Southern District of New York for a long time has been the Sovereign District of New York. And we are largely left alone. And so I had gotten no indication that anybody was going to be getting in my way. And at the moment, I thought anybody was trying to dictate what I should do. I would have left that day. The meeting went about as well as I expected it to go. Nothing untoward happened. Nothing strange happened. Oh, other than one thing, which has later relevance. And that was in the middle of the meeting, uh, Donald Trump himself pushed a yellow pad, a yellow posted pad in my direction across the desk and asked me to put my phone numbers on on a post-it. And I looked around because I thought this was awkward because certainly other people had my digits. And I uh, looked around the room and people didn't seem to think it was odd. And I wrote down both my work number and my cell phone number on the yellow pad and pushed it back across the table. It was odd because, you know, as a general matter, uh, presidents don't speak directly to United States attorneys. It's unheard of in my experience. 
Fast forward to December 12th, just a couple of weeks later. I was without my iPhone that day because I was touring, actually, Rikers Island, local prison in New York, where there had been a lot of allegations of uh, excessive use of force by guards. It was an important case to me in the office because we're trying to reform Rikers Island. But during the time that I was there, I was told later that the president-elect had called to speak to me, which I thought, that's sort of odd. Maybe he had changed his mind. I don't know. I had a discussion when I got back to the office about whether or not it was appropriate without any intermediary like the attorney general nominee to talk to the president-elect. And we decided that there was nothing precluding it and that I would call the president-elect back. You know, the number of times that President Obama called me, zero. So I wondered what it was about. And I also wondered why the president-elect would not have foremost in his mind the awkwardness that surrounded the tarmac incident where there was a private conversation between Bill Clinton and then-Attorney General Loretta Lynch. And the most notable critic of that meeting was Donald Trump himself. But he was not yet the president, couldn't direct me to do anything, and I chose to return the call after consulting with my folks and after also, by the way, letting the head of Department of Justice transition, knowing that the call came and that I thought it was not the greatest thing in the world for there to be a direct and casual line of communication between a sitting United States attorney and the future president of the United States, particularly given the kinds of jurisdiction I have in Manhattan, which I think you appreciate. You know, interests close to the president of the United States, business interests and associates. In fact, I told my father, my dad, about the phone call. He's a retired pediatrician, Indian immigrant, living in New Jersey. And his reaction was, I don't like that he's calling you, Preet. I don't like it. So after that phone call, I made sure that the Department of Justice transition head knew about it. I made sure my deputies knew about it. I should point out, by the way, that it was a completely genial phone call. No cases came up. Nothing untoward happened. He was very friendly, clearly wanting to cultivate you know, a relationship. But no, nothing improper happened in the phone call. And then I just hoped, given the need to be independent and somewhat detached from the White House and from politics, that that was a one-time thing and I wasn't going to hear from him again. But fast forward to January 18th, which was a Wednesday, and it in fact was the Wednesday before the inauguration. And once again, I was away from my desk, but a call came in that the president-elect wanted to speak to me. And now at this point, I'm thinking, I don't know why he's calling again. I would expect that he was busy, you know, with the whole inauguration thing. But I again consulted with my deputies, tried to make sure there was nothing improper about returning the phone call. And our decision had been that so long as he was not yet the president, it was appropriate and proper to return the call. But once again, I made it known that I'd gotten the phone call to members of DOJ Transition, and I returned the phone call. And this time again, the president-elect seemed to simply be calling to shoot the breeze. He said, you know, all the governors in the country were calling him and reaching out because they wanted the federal spigot open. And that was interesting to him. So it was a not particularly focused or relevant conversation. He didn't ask me about any cases, and I didn't mention any. But I thought it was, again, odd. When so many other things were going on, he was preparing to take office as the commander-in-chief and leader of the free world that he had time for a five-minute chit-chat with the local U.S. attorney in Manhattan. To my knowledge, Donald Trump didn't call any other U.S. attorney, and none has come forward to say that they got a phone call. It seemed like it was just me. Now fast forward to March 9th. 2017, my assistant Hillary had left early for the day to go take a flight to visit her boyfriend in California. And so the call went to voicemail. When I picked up the call from voicemail, it was the president's secretary in the White House asking me to return the call to speak to President Trump. Now, at this point, he was no longer the president-elect. At this point, he was president of the United States. He was the chief executive of the country. 
And it's of some relevance that not only that, but in recent days and weeks, there had been, you know, from some quarters, cries to investigate various aspects of the president's business dealings, ethical arrangements, you know, a whole swirl of things were happening. Whether they were meritorious or not is not the point, but they were in the air. So now I had this issue of whether or not to call the president of the United States back. And I presume that lay people would think, well, he's kind of your boss. He asked you to stay. You serve at the pleasure of the president. Why don't you just call him back? And it's important to understand that's not really how it works in the Justice Department. It's a little bit different in that there has to be not only independence, but the appearance of independence. And if something is happening sort of behind the scenes and not through normal channels, it can look terrible, not just for the U.S. attorney or the attorney general or whoever, but for the president himself. I mean, in in fact, that was the issue that caused a lot of controversy when Bill Clinton met on the tarmac with Loretta Lynch. It seemed to me to be basically the same thing. So I called my deputy in, June Kim, who's now the acting U.S. attorney, worried how it would look later if these unusual, in fact, perhaps unprecedented calls had taken place between the president of the United States and the U.S. attorney he had asked to stay, who has particularly poignant areas of jurisdiction. So I get the call, and I've got to decide whether or not to call the president of the United States back. You know, most presidents would expect their calls to be returned, and most people who work at any job anywhere would expect that when the person at the top of the food chain calls you, you call them back. Not so simple when it's the Justice Department. And not so simple when there has been this history of allegation about private meetings between law enforcement officials and political figures. So I thought it was odd that he would be putting himself in this position. I didn't know if it had been organized by the attorney general. In fact, I have reason to believe later that nobody knew that Donald Trump was calling me from the Oval Office or wherever he was. And I'm not saying that I thought he was going to tell me to do something I shouldn't do. But even the phone call itself, I think, was a problem. And we discussed how we should deal with it because I wasn't trying to be arrogant and rude, but I also wanted to protect the independence of the office. And it's not an easy thing not to call back the president of the United States. So I didn't do it lightly. I didn't snub the phone call lightly, as you might imagine. We pulled up actual policies about making sure that very, very few people in the White House have contact with very, very few people at the Justice Department. And I'm not on that list. And I'll tell you something else that was kind of extraordinary that we considered doing. We didn't do it, but we considered briefly whether or not I should record my phone call with the president of the United States. That seemed kind of a bridge too far to us. Then we thought whether or not there should be a witness to the phone call. But we also decided that that didn't seem proper either to sort of surreptitiously listen in on a call between me and the president. In fact, the most respectful thing that I thought we could do was to decline speaking to him. I called Jeff Sessions' office, and I spoke directly to Jody Hunt. Jody Hunt is the chief of staff to the Attorney General of the United States, and I said, the President of the United States has called me. Do you agree with me that I should decline to speak to the President of the United States? And Jeff Sessions, Chief of Staff, said, I agree with you. So I called the Secretary back, it was about an hour and a half later, and I said, I mean, no disrespect to the President, but given guidelines and current circumstances and the agreement of Jeff Sessions' office, I don't think it's appropriate for me to speak directly to the President. 20 hours later, I was asked to resign. I don't know if those two events are connected. We may never know, but the timing certainly is pretty odd. So I get a call on Friday afternoon at about 2.30 from Dana Bente, the acting deputy attorney general. His tone was very serious, and he said, I've been asked to request a resignation letter from every Obama United States attorney. I didn't mean to sound like a diva, but I did say, you know, are you sure that applies to me? 
because I had that whole thing, you know, with Trump Tower back in November. You may have seen it. Uh, and he's, he, he's actually said, well, I was told everyone, but I can ask. And so on that first day, Friday, March 10th, I wasn't trying to be defiant. I just didn't know if I was included incorrectly. I didn't want to accidentally resign from a job that I had been asked to remain in directly by the president of the United States. And then after consultation with folks in the office, I decided, so the record would always be clear, that I would not submit my letter of resignation. And if my services were no longer desired, then I wanted to make sure that that was coming from the president because I had met with him. And if I had not met with the president or the election had gone the other way or in the ordinary course, we were all going to leave. That would have been perfectly fine. But I've lived long enough to know that you want the record to be clear for posterity. And the president had every right to ask for letters of resignation from everyone who worked for him. He had every right to fire anybody who worked for him. And so I wanted to give him that opportunity. So if later on it came out that there were nefarious reasons for doing something, that there would be no doubt that it was the wish of the president himself. He'd asked me to stay. He should ask me to go. It was as simple as that. And so I came to work the next day expecting to be fired. And I sat in my office on the eighth floor and put on CNN. And finally, at some point early in the afternoon, uh, Dana Bente called me again. And he said, I understand that you are not submitting a letter of resignation. And I said, that's right. And I explained to him why. And Dana said, okay, I got to call you back. I don't know why it took so long or why it was a big deal for someone to fire me. So I was just waiting for that word. And once it came, I hit send on a farewell email I sent to my office, uh, finished my Vietnamese rolls that we had ordered for lunch, and walked out. You know, people ask me the question, why do you think you were fired? And I say, you know, I don't know. I'm prepared to believe lots of things are possible. It could be because someone got angry that I didn't return the phone call. It could be that people thought that there were all these U.S. attorneys who were part of this nonsensical notion of the deep state. That could be a reason. It could be a combination of reasons. It could have been an accident, and they decided to stick with it. It could be because some people thought that they didn't want independent people around. I just don't know. And I'm not here to speculate. I just laid out the facts. But I will tell you one thing. Now that it has been some months, I believe, based on the information that we have about the president talking to Jim Comey relating to Michael Flynn, the information about the president talking to Jeff Sessions, about the case of Joe Arpaio and how he wanted both of those cases to go away, that had I not been fired and had Donald Trump continued to cultivate a direct personal relationship with me, it's my strong belief that at some point, given the history, the president of the United States would have asked me to do something inappropriate and I would have resigned then. I don't know for a fact, but that's my strong belief. And that, by the way, brings me to my first guest, former Secretary of Defense, former CIA director, former Chief of Staff to Bill Clinton, former Congressman, former Budget Director. God, this guy's got a lot of titles. Leon Panetta. The reason I wanted to talk to Leon Panetta is he has always, I think, in public life, thought deeply about the question of what is right and what is wrong, and how do you get other people to do the right thing? And that's why I trekked down to D.C. recently to meet Leon Panetta in his office to talk about chaos in the White House, Russian spies, and what this moment in America means and how we're going to come out of it. Coming up after a short break, my conversation with Leon Panetta. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need 
to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Great to be with you. Thank you. So, as you may have read, I was fired <laughs> by the President of the United States. <laughs> yes, I and, did. And you have had a lot of great jobs working for presidents, including Barack Obama and President Clinton, and people talk about that, but people may not appreciate as much that you also were once fired. That's right. By a president when you were a young Republican in 1970, working for the Nixon administration as head of the Civil Rights Division at what was then Health, Education, and Welfare, you were fired, were you not? Absolutely. <laughs> why, why, were you, why were you fired? Well, you know, what had happened was that Richard Nixon, uh, when he was running for president, in order to make sure that he could win at the convention, uh, he cut a deal with uh, Strom Thurmond and other Southerners, in which he basically made a commitment that if he was elected, he would back off of uh, tough civil rights enforcement. And did you know that at the time you took this job? Well, you know, there were a lot of rumors that uh, there had been the so-called Southern strategy. But, I, you know, I thought nobody is going to want to retreat from what Brown versus Board of Education. But you were wrong. Well, what happened was uh, that he had cut this deal, and I became director of the Office for Civil Rights, began to enforce uh, our provisions, which basically meant going to school districts, largely in the Deep South, who had been divided black children from white children by law for almost 200 years, and try to go to those school districts and try to desegregate those districts and break down the racial barriers, uh, which is not easy. It was a tough job. I began to get pressure from the White House 
to uh, back off of that kind of uh, enforcement. And I said, well, that's the law. And you, you gave an interview that I came across <laughs> in 2007 at the Nixon Library about how you went about thinking about this issue. And let me just read it to you because it's been ringing in my ears for a couple of days. You said, I guess there was a point where I myself had to ask the question, what do I do here? And I guess everybody who's in a job in the government that's sensitive has to sometimes face that crossroads where you have to make a decision. You know, do I sell out? Do I basically do what the political pressures want to do and kind of, you know, protect myself politically? Or do I stand up for what I think is right, no matter what the consequences may be? How hard was that for you? Preet, I think, uh, in all honesty, you have to admit it's one of the toughest decisions uh, a person can make. You know, I was 27. I was about 27, 28. And um, I faced this decision between whether I should do what I think is right in my conscience and what I felt was right from all of the work I had done uh, in supporting civil rights laws, or I could advance my political career. But I figured that the politics would ultimately have to cave in to the substance of what, what was right for this country. So I felt in some ways that uh, continuing to do the right thing, even though it was risky, and I knew that, I'd been told that, at the same time, I thought it, it would be worthwhile. And, and you could look yourself in the mirror the next morning. Exactly. And let me take it into the modern era now, because it seems a lot of what people are talking about is precisely this question. You've taken a job in the White House, and you support maybe some of President Trump's policies, maybe not others. And... Maybe you don't like some of the things he's saying. And there's a lot of discussion about whether or not people who were like you back in the Nixon administration, what's the standard for whether or not they should resign? And do you have advice for them? I'm a believer that you do keep fighting. You, you have to keep fighting. But from within or without? Well, I think you keep fighting from within. And you try to push it as long as you can to try to move things in what you think is the right direction. So speaking of the White House, let's set the scene. You have an undisciplined president in some ways. He's fighting with Congress. He's fighting with members of his own party. He brings in a new chief of staff to replace the prior chief of staff, whose job is in some ways uh, to restrict the flow of information to the president, to make sure that free-floating advisors are not coming into the Oval Office willy-nilly, to limit access. That's not President Trump. That's you in 1994, after 17 months of the Clinton administration, as the new chief of staff. Well, there's a lot of similarities, uh, and uh, soon after he was uh, announced, uh, John Kelly called me because I know John. He was my military aide. At, what did uh, he ask you? The Department of Defense. <laughs> he said, "How do you deal with this? How do you, how do you you know what, what what you know what what do I have to do to be effective in the job of chief of staff?" And I shared with him, you know, a lot of the lessons that I had uh, learned when I became chief of staff because. There, there wasn't any kind of chain of command that was operating there. I mean, I'd go into a meeting with uh, Bill Clinton. There'd be 50 people there in the Oval Office, everyone talking, nobody having any responsibility once that meeting was concluded. There was no question there was a lot of chaos. I remember going to my predecessor, uh, Mac McClarty, and uh, saying, do you have an organization chart for the White House? And he looked at me and he said, you know, I don't believe I have one of those. <laughs> I thought, And this, oh. is, this is 17 months in. <laughs> I thought, my God. So I, I have to do basics here. 
You got to, I mean, I, frankly, I fell back on my Army experience. You develop a chain of command. You do little boxes. Here's the chief of staff. Here are the deputies. Here's who's responsible to who. Uh, you establish discipline with regards to, you know, who goes into the Oval Office. You, you establish uh, an organized way to come to decisions so that they can be presented to the president and he can make the ultimate decision. If you had to compare based on your knowledge of the inside of the Clinton White House and your knowledge from the outside of the Trump White House, on a scale of one to 10, how chaotic was Clinton's and how chaotic do you think Donald Trump's is? Well, there's a fundamental difference here. Bill Clinton, he was really dedicated to wanting to be a good president for the United States. He had a bright mind. He was very inquisitive. He loved to talk to a lot of people. He was very political, loved to deal with people. But he had very little discipline in that process. So Bill Clinton came to the point where he said, I need you to become chief of staff in order to make sure that we establish that discipline. I, re I remember telling him, because I was OMB director, I said, you know, Mr. President, I think I'm much more valuable to you as OMB director because we've just passed the budget. We're on a great path here. I'm doing appropriations bills for you. You know, I think you really need me there. And he said to me, Leon, you can be the greatest OMB director in the history of America, but if the White House is falling apart, nobody's going to remember you. Right. So the difference is that you had a president who wanted to be disciplined, wanted to have uh, the White House to operate in an orderly process and was willing to accept the disciplines that I put in place because he knew that that was the most effective way for him to operate. I'm not sure that Donald Trump wants that to happen. So how worried are you about how the decisions are being made in those rooms, not just the Oval Office, but at the Pentagon and at the CIA and at other places that determine the future of our democracy and also determine the future of our safety? I think, well, I, I think it's very important that the sense of right and wrong be present and that you make decisions based on what you think is morally right for the nation and that you make the decision based on what you think will give our children that better life. I don't think that those are the values that are at play in a lot of the decisions that are being made now. And that concerns me. Is there any specific decision or issue on which you think the values of right and wrong are not getting proper hearing? I think for me, um, the president crossed a threshold when he refused to criticize what happened in Charlottesville, to uh, denounce the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists uh, and what they were doing. For me, that's a clear moral decision in which the President of the United States has to stand up and speak to what America is really about. And for some reason, he failed at that. Let me ask you a further question about leadership then. Because, you know, I, I, anybody who runs any organization, even an office like the U.S. Attorney's Office, you think about all the time. That's right. The way in which you get the best out of people, the way in which you increase morale and have them be loyal to the institution, if not to the leader of the institution. And I know that you, as Secretary of Defense, used to keep on your wall a, a picture of former President Eisenhower. He once said, you don't lead people by beating them on the head. That's assault, not leadership. I think he's right in the sense that uh, what you need to do 
is you do need to establish discipline. And as a military officer, he knows, he knows basic discipline uh, that operates uh, in the military ranks. But it isn't just discipline that's going to get the job done. It's also inspiring people to do what needs to be done and to be able to recognize that even in a disciplined operation, you are dealing with human beings. And you've got to be able to relate to human beings. You've got to make them feel like they are part of a team. You've got to make them feel like the role that they're playing is important. You've got to be able to show them that the mission that we are all involved with is the right mission. So speaking of teams, we first met because we were on a team of sorts together. And it was the early part of 2010, or the middle part of 2010, and I was in a room uh, at the FBI headquarters with you, Bob Mueller, not sure what became of that guy, uh, <laughs> the head of the National Security Division, and we were discussing the operational procedure of rounding up and arresting 10 or more Russian spies. Uh, that's the famous case with Anna Chapman and others that I was overseeing the prosecution of, and obviously as director of the CIA, you had a large role in figuring out what we were going to do. And I, there's a lot that happened in that room that we can't talk about uh, on open mic because it was classified and remains so. But how, how important do you think it was for us to be arresting and prosecuting those spies? It was, uh, as I think you believe, a hell of a big deal. And particularly in light of what's going on today, you know, with this whole Russian investigation, what the Russians are doing and uh, how they're trying to uh, impact on our country I don't think uh, we can ever kid ourselves about the fact that uh, Russia is an adversary. And the proof of that was in that situation where they had planted 10 people in this country as ordinary citizens to uh, locate themselves in communities, uh, become a part of those communities, and then ultimately move into sensitive positions so they could spy for Russia. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is just a long-time uh, KGB tactics that, uh, you know, that, that have gone on. Fortunately, uh, you know, we, we were ahead of the game. And I remember, <laughs> I remember a moment in the White House before this happened. We were at the National Security Council. And um, we said that we've got to arrest these people. And at the time, uh, the president was meeting with Medvedev. Yeah. And this, is, this was in June of 2010. That's right. And the feeling in the White House was, well, wait a minute, you know, we can't uh, go out and arrest all these people while we were trying the president's yeah. meeting with Medvedev. But why not? And uh, well, that, that, that was that my was, view. That was my question too. And so I, you know, we debated this, and there were there were people saying, you know, no, 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 we've got to, we got to hold off, we got to hold off. And and I I looked at them at that point, and I said, I remember saying to the national security advisor, I said, you know. I said, you really ought to think long and hard about the decision here and think about the possibility of a Washington Post headline that says, when we had the chance to arrest 10 Russian spies, we hesitated. It's unfortunate that you had to use the prospect <laughs> of a bad press story, right? Because That's right. to my mind, look, I'm a law and order guy. You're a law and order guy. God knows Bob Mueller is a law and order guy. And I remember being in that room, and I think everyone was pretty adamant that we had to arrest Absolutely. and prosecute. But then the decision was made after arresting them, and, we, and they all pled guilty summarily in a court where I attended in front of Judge Kimba Wood at the time. It was a surreal experience where literally 
these Russians were asked to plead guilty. And it, it, during the course of the proceeding, Judge Wood had to ask each of them to state their name. And the first one was asked to state his name. And he had to respond saying, do you mean my real name or my American name? And she said, well, no, your real name. And he gave a Russian name. But the decision was made to swap them for other spies. Yeah. And I will tell you, frankly, that, you know, as a law and order person and a prosecutor and not a diplomat, I've never been accused of being a diplomat. I wasn't sure if that was the right thing. In yeah, the I can understand justice. that. If I were uh, in your shoes, I'd feel the right. same way. <laughs> and there was a lot of discussion. But, you know, I'm, I was a lowly United States attorney. Yeah. And part of that reason that happened was you had a close relationship with your counterpart at the SVR, Mikhail Fradkov. Yeah. Do you think it was the right thing to do to swap those prisoners? And how did you think about that decision? When I talked to Fradkov, and, and basically uh, I said, and I, I didn't expect him to say this. I thought he would deny uh, that these people were, uh, were spies. Look, I said, we have your people. We just arrested them. And he said, you're right. They are my people. And at the time, you know, we talked it through and looked at the possibility that we would have a number of trials and that this would all go on for a long period of time. And looked at the fact that there were three or four key people that had been uh, in Soviet prison uh, who had been spies. Uh, and whether or not this was uh, solved more speedily through an exchange of, uh, of prisoners. And when I suggested it to him, by the way, of that, you know, is, there, is it possible we could work out some kind of exchange here? The first thing he said, it was very interesting, Medvedev was president. He says, I have to talk to Putin. And Putin wasn't in really any official position at the time. <laughs> but, but he didn't need to be in an official position. That's right. right. Uh, but they had, they had to talk to Putin, and uh, and I have to tell you, that moment uh, in Vienna when uh, one plane landed and the other, uh, the Russians were there and they exchanged prisoners, it was like a scene from, uh, you know, uh, a Hollywood movie, like The Third Man. All, all that was missing was a zither right. playing in the background. <laughs> no, it was, an, it was an amazing time and, and complicated set of questions, but it raises the specter of what our relationship should be with Russia. You have said more than once that Russia is our adversary, yep. not our friend. I just want to take us back a few years to the 2012 era when Barack Obama, in a presidential debate with Mitt Romney, made fun of Mitt Romney for saying that Russia is our number one geopolitical foe. And I think Obama said the 1980s is asking for its foreign policy back. Given what has happened in recent times with the intervention with our election and the hacking and everything else, is the 1980s still calling for its foreign policy back? I don't think there's any question that, uh, that Russia remains one of the uh, principal adversaries to the United States. I, I, when I first went to the CIA, uh, th there was this sense, you know, the wall had come down, Soviet Union had come down, that Russia was not, did not represent the kind of threat that it had represented in the past. And I remember I had a group of people who had been working on Russia uh, in, you know, uh, in the CIA. And these, these guys were like Cold War warriors who basically said, don't for a minute <laughs> think that the Russians are going to suddenly change and, and become our buddies. And you agree with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think we underestimated the Russians, though, as, as a nation a few years ago? 
I think we we underestimated our ability to be able to uh, develop the kind of relationship with Russia that would be similar to the relationship with other allies in the world. That just was never going to happen. If you could have one question answered by Special Counsel Mueller's investigation, what would it be? I, I you know, I think, I think Bob Mueller, who's a, a friend and, and somebody I have a great deal of respect for, uh, has a huge challenge uh, to deal with. But I think for the sake of this country, it is incredibly important to find out, knowing now what we know, that Russia deliberately interfered in our election process. I think it is very important to find out whether the things they did did involve any collusion uh, with members of the Trump campaign. If, in fact, that happened, I think it is, in many ways, not just the Russians undermining our political process. It is our own citizens basically engaging in an act of treason that undermines our system of justice. And so if Special Counsel Mueller finds there was collusion with members of the Trump campaign, what should happen then? I think then... uh, The question then is expanded as to what was the role of the president in this process, as to uh, whether there's culpability. If Donald Trump had some knowledge about this, do you think it reaches the level of that word that people like to use, overly casually, I think, of impeachment? You know, obviously, as you know, uh, being a prosecutor, uh, you hate to jump to conclusions. Correct. Without seeing all the evidence uh, and without seeing all of the pieces put together uh, because uh, this is a big step. In addition to what we just talked about, uh, another issue involving uh, interference or obstruction of justice uh, that may have occurred as well. So if obstruction is found on the part of anyone, what do you think should happen? Do you think, do you think there should be prosecutions? If there's obstruction uh, by those... Uh, you know, not the president of the United States, but by others around him, obviously there should be prosecution. If it involves the president of the United States, I think that's an impeachable offense. Right. Final question. What do you think America looks like at the end of President Trump's first term? You know, I want to believe uh, this country is stronger than any one president and that uh, our forefathers were very smart in creating a system of checks and balances. You know, I think that what I sense now is that, you know, that system of checks and balances, whether it's the Congress or whether it's the courts or whether it's just people in the country who are uh, resisting, uh, you know, uh, certain things that are happening, I think that tells me that, you know, we're going to be able to get through this without undermining the basic institutions of our democracy. I want to believe that. And, And I guess the reason I want to believe that is because this country for over 200 years has faced all kinds of crises, whether it was recessions or depressions or world wars or a civil war or natural disasters. And somehow we've always risen to the occasion because I think, I think the real strength of this country 
isn't here in Washington. I think it's in the spirit and resilience and courage and moral faith of the American people. Secretary Panetta, thank you so much. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Preet. Good to be with you. Good to see you. So before we go, quickly, you know, a lot of important stories get drowned out by the 24-7 news about Trump. And some of these are important stories. And I want to mention just one that stuck with me and touched me. You may remember that back in February, there was a shooting incident in a Kansas bar where two Indian American immigrants were hassled by a bigot and a racist who didn't want them in the country. And he was kicked out of the bar and he came back into the bar and he shot both of them, injuring one, killing the other. And the man he killed was named Srinivas Kuchiboti. It was a terrible moment, I think, in America where it seems that white supremacists and bigots want to have their day. But there was also a shining moment in that scene, as you may remember, when a white American named Ian Grillet stood up for these two strangers who were immigrants and tried to protect them. He became a hero at that moment, and he got shot himself. And that, I think, was a great moment. It shows there's hate, but there's also love and tolerance. And the reason why that story has stuck with me is my own parents are Indian immigrants. You know, there but for the grace of God could have gone them. Now, fast forward to just a few days ago when the news broke that the widow of the man who died, Sunayana, her immigration status was derivative of her husband's. And so by virtue of her husband now being dead, because he was shot by a racist, she might be deported. Imagine how much injustice that would have been. So enter Congressman Kevin Yoder, Republican from the 3rd District in Kansas, who has not always been a friend on immigration issues. And he did what may have been difficult for him, but correct, and figured out a way to help her maintain her status and get a visa. And so for now, her situation seems secure. And I thought that's something worth calling out and thanking the congressman for. Well, that's the first episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Leon Panetta. Thanks to CAFE for giving me this podcast, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. It just takes a second, and it's a huge help. Don't forget, if you have questions about news, justice, law, politics, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338 and leave a message. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. The podcast is recorded at CDM Studios, located in the Southern District of New York. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jared Milford, and Jeff Eisenman. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>